Hey there, pastor, clergy, or community leader. Yeah, you. You know who I'm talking to. Is your community feeling scattered? Are you feeling worn out and frayed? Are you wondering what church looks like in 2021 or beyond? Well, guess what? Faith Street is here to help. Faith Street is an iOS and Android app that brings congregations together. It strengthens people's commitment to the church and each other. It builds community by promoting prayer, mindfulness, generosity, reflection, fellowship, and teaching as daily practices. If you're interested, you can go to faithstreet.com backslash snarky because snarky faith listeners can get 20% off. That's faithstreet, F-A-I-T-H-S-T-R-E-E-T.com backslash snarky. You're listening to WCOMLP 103.5 FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and Snarky Faith is radio for the spiritually disenfranchised. If you've had enough of the insanity of Christianity, you've come to the right place. Here at Snarky Faith, we're all about finding a sane faith grounded in reality, working to make the world a better place in tangible ways. This is not a zone for spiritual escapism, Sunday school answers, or Christianese. We're here to call out religious BS and look for better ways forward. And if you can handle your conversations about faith with copious amounts of sarcasm and also a bit of this, then you've come to the right place. Welcome home on today's show, which is going to be jam packed because, hey, we're going to move straight from this, my intro, straight into our main interview for the day. So I'm going to be sitting down for the bulk of our show with author Matthew Cortman talking about his new book, Saying No to God. It is a great conversation, and I had a fantastic time sitting down with Matthew. As you will hear, I think you will enjoy it as much as I did. And if you're looking for a little bit of the Christian crazy, hey, for those of you listening on podcasts, not on terrestrial radio, I'll throw some in on the end. We'll give you a little taste of crazy because, hey, we're not going for crazy today talking to Mr. Cortman here. No, no, no. We're digging deep into some real truths and talking about how we can dig deeper into how we read the Bible and begin to look at it in different and tangible ways. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop in with our interview. Here we go. Joining me today is Matthew Cortman. Matthew is a rising biblical scholar, itinerant preacher, and a theological arsonist. Uh, he's currently pursuing doctoral work in biblical studies, having recently graduated with a master's degree, a master's of arts in religion from Yale Divinity School. He also holds four bachelor degrees in theology, archaeology, philosophy, and screenwriting, because he's apparently a show-off. Um, and Matthew's also a purveyor of the chinstrap beard and the author of the book, Saying No to God, a Radical pr Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, wow, I haven't heard somebody mention the chin strap beard off uh, outside of TikTok. So that that was a surprise. Not ma not many people can rock it, but you you sir, you have you have done it well. You've done oh, it well. well. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so so the book we're going to be talking about today, saying no to God. So Matthew, were you a rebellious child? No, actually, I, I wasn't. I I my mom was uh, a very loving parent, very coddling, um, always pushing me to imagine and try new things. So I, I never felt a need to rebel. There was nothing to rebel against. Um, you know, on the other hand, I guess like the, the closest to rebellion would be like my mom, tell, my, my mom homeschooled me when I was younger. And, um, so she was very sheltering in the very beginning when I was a little kid, but I remember, uh, what was it? Cartoon Network uh, used to have, to, uh, what was it called, Tsunami or something mm -hmm. back in the day, and they ran anime on there. And I was, I must have been like nine or ten or something, and like Sailor Moon would come on, and uh, Gundam, and some other, and Dragon Ball, and I, I thought those were so cool. But then like 
she didn't want me to watch them. So like I would like turn the TV on and like put it up one, two bars and, right, <laughs> and be like, that was gateway probably, to hell. Isn't that right? Is right. That... Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was the extent of my, of, of what I think I could describe as rebellion. Otherwise I never really had a reason to. So, I mean, that also taught me something growing up, which is that to rebel, you know, you actually need something that's pushing against you mm-hmm. uh, to do so, you know, otherwise you don't rebel unless there's a reason you just, you are so you know that that tells you something about cause and effect that's very true that's very true for one who has kids i i i will say that that psychologically uh, checks out um now now let, go ahead and, and I, I we're going to be talking through a lot of the ideas that you are wrestling through in this book um but as we kind of descend into this like what what led you to write this book like what led you into this like specific space that you explore well i think Part of it was as much as it's like a journey for a reader to go into this book, and that's how it's designed to be like, oh, let's explore these things. I mean, I literally undertook the book to do that. That's why I, I started writing. And, and part of the motivation was just that there were these stories that I knew of that would get referenced on odd occasions where, you know, either it says God changed his mind or it talks about people wrestling with God. And, and, and these stories always kind of like, all the elements regarding the human participant would kind of get skipped over. And then, you know, everyone would be talking about, you know, what about God? Why did God attack? Or what, you know, how could God change his mind? And, and then, you know, like certain fields of study are very focused on these questions, like open theism, where, you know, people involved in open and relational theology are very interested in the question of divine, you know, ontology. What does it mean about God's very being that he could change his mind? And personally, I just found those questions so over the top, you know, kind of like a lot of discussions about the Trinity, where I'm just like, okay, I'm confused. Why, like, why is this so complicated? And also, is this really the most interesting thing we could be talking about? (laughs) And for me, what I was so much more interested in was trying to understand why were the human characters involved in these things? Like, why did the human character argue with God? Why did he think he should argue with God? Right. And these were characters who were always the most faithful in the Hebrew Bible. Um, so there was always this question mark of if they're the most faithful, why did their faith motivate them to act this way? That seems to go contrary to all of our usual expectations about orthodoxy or about correct ways of behavior as a proper Christian or the correct theology one should have. And so when you know you you have those questions in your mind, suddenly I'm like, okay, well, God's interesting, but the human partner here might be the key. To understanding what these texts have to say. And especially when you think we're in a postmodern world, people have lots of concerns about scripture's role. How do I understand uh, the role of the Bible in my life? Is it authoritative? In what way? Having stories that talk about people telling God no, or resisting God, or fighting God, even physically fighting God, suddenly seem, and then not just that they fought God, like, okay, well, you were bad, now you learned your lesson, but like you fought God and got the result Jonah never did, you won. And even in one case, it says you won, or in the other case, God changes his mind, quote unquote. How did that happen from the perspective of the human? What was it they were doing that let, led to that conclusion or allowed that? And how does that fit in the biblical worldview? Since like when I was getting raised, especially if anyone's raised in something similar, like an evangelical mindset, you know, uh, God said it, that settles it. Now it's my job to believe it right? Mm-hmm. Here, God says it, the character says, not nah, a hell with it. And God says, darn right, thank you. <laughs> uh, and, and it just made no sense. And mm-hmm. I wasn't seeing anyone focused on that issue. So that just drove me to think if, if, and then you combine that with the fact that I was really exhausted by watching liberals and conservatives fight each other over inerrancy in what seemed like you know, or inspiration and what seemed like a merry-go-round that just kept going round and round and, and never changes. The arguments just keep happening. I was just like, this is so boring. This is so exhausting. We're not getting anywhere fast. And we're just, just no development, no progress. So I thought, okay, if no one's talking about this part of these stories, and it seems like these stories have such relevance for people in terms of what, you know, people feel like they can't do. And yet here are these heroes of faith and they're doing it then maybe if I threw myself into looking at these stories, I would suddenly be able to go, oh, there might be an answer here or a direction or a path we could follow that is intimately a part of the Bible's 
history and, and its orthodox traditions, and yet has been overlooked perhaps to our detriment. And so that really motivated my uh, attempt to start writing the book. And what I appreciate, and, and, and just full, full disclosure for my listeners too, this, is, this has been a book that I think I've even mentioned on the air, that, that I've been journeying with, uh, with a group um, over the past many weeks going through this together. And it's, and it's been, I will just say, it's, it's been a great conversation piece going through this book to really wrestle with things with other people. And, and the odd thing even about this group was I really, a lot of these were just listeners and other people that were out there. And I just sent a couple message out online and said, hey, who wants to do this? And then it was a group that is, a lot of them are either pastors or ex-pastors wanting space to be able to wrestle through this because they don't always feel like they have that kind of a space in their own circles, especially if they're parts of larger churches. And and one thing I just wanted to mention to you, like there was, there was actually one guy that, that through all this wrestling through this book, um, actually ended up, I think, quitting his job at a church. So my main question for you would be, how do you sleep at night, Matthew? Um, no, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> no, 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 this was, it's, it's a true story. And, but a lot of this was, it was through conversations that we were going through, but not, I think these, these were seeds that had been there for a long time. And a lot of these conversations, I think, began to kind of help this process along. Um, for someone. So yeah, you are a theological wow. arsonist. If you want to just, that, that is, I mean, I, 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 I don't know what to think. I mean, uh, one part is if, if it was a toxic situation he was in yeah. and he was trapped by it, then I mean, I would be happy. Then I would say like, okay, it was a happy ending. Was, How about that? It was, okay, it was a yeah, happy ending. Okay. Yes. Then I'm, I'm glad if, if it's an issue of, of his own mental health and, and just not feeling the freedom to make the right decision for where he needs to be for him and his family or otherwise, then then I'm glad that the book could serve in some sense that way. If it's that he felt unhinged, well, that would be shocking to me it only was. because that was not, <laughs> that no, was no. not. This has been, and for me, like saying this, this is a book, it's, it's been an interesting thing of, of, it's almost felt like therapy in many ways for a lot of people that as, as we've wrestled through this, because I feel like one of the attempts that you seem to be doing here, it's almost like restoring the humanity in the Bible. Um, in a, in a weird way, restoring the humanity to almost be able to see God better. Um, because too often I feel like do we make that we, we look at the Bible as if it's like somehow that God used people like avatars, you know, somehow like, like their consciousness yeah. was gone and just blah, 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 and they just writing things down in this way. And, and I feel like it, it I, I've, I've appreciated you kind of restoring this humanity to the Bible. So, and obviously in the book that you've clearly done your homework and scholarship, which I also appreciate um, as, as, as you were, you were dissecting through things, but your book, your book kind of breaks into these, these, these two like main ideas. One of, is, of them is talking about the divine command theory. And for the sake of that, uh, I want you to, let's, let's, I want you to kind of give us a running definition of that for, for people that may not know what that means. Sure. Like divine command theory is literally God says it, that settles it. So now your job is to do it. It, it means that um, the authentication or the origination of the good, whatever is moral, is purely what comes from God. And, and it's not to be confused with the idea that God is morality. And so um, whatever God says will be moral. But to be more exact, uh, morality is whatever God says. Morality is simply who God, like whatever, in other words, it's not that God is moral. It's that morality is God. Uh, and so God, whatever God says is moral, even if God should turn on everything he ever said. So theoretically in a divine command model, uh, even if someone goes and denies it and says, absolutely not, you know, there's no way that could happen. Well, yeah, but the Bible's filled with stories where they, you know, that happens. So for example, if God says, don't kill, and then God says, all right, now go and kill all these Canaanites, right? There's no questioning whether there's a contradiction uh, or whether, you know, you should disagree. You just do it. So if God tells you today, don't ever murder your mother, and then tomorrow he comes and says, you need to go kill your mother, you can't turn to him and say, but yesterday you taught me this because the principle is not that God taught you morality. It's that whatever God spoke is morality. So even if he changes the next day, it's moral to do the opposite thing because God said it. So taken to its extreme, it's very arbitrary. It makes morality uh, literally the divine command only. 
So what that ends up meaning is that um, you can, a, a lot of pastors in evangelical communities will kind of espouse this kind of viewpoint because when someone says, well, I think that it's wrong that God is killing these Canaanites or I have a problem with, right? Their response is just, well, God can do whatever God well pleases, right? Like he can do whatever he wants. He brought you in this world. He can take you out just like your mama used to toy. <laughs> you know, just like that's, that's the model, you know, it, you, you don't get a word. And of course, this is even probably more blatant in sort of a Calvinist sort of uh, reform tradition model, you know, classic where, you know, you're a depraved human being, you, you know, or as Jonathan Edwards might be arguing, you know, even when you're born, God wants to murder you, you know, you're, 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 you're so terrible because of sin's corruption of your being. So like, there's lots of theories that can be built on top of this, but a divine command model essentially means you can never talk back. Um, and then, of course, that just completely goes against the Bi uh, not not all Bible stories. There are Bible stories that do lead you to think about divine command. I don't really cover them in my book. And one of my subsequent new books, I'll deal more heavily with trying to deal with those kinds of stories. But the thing is, like they exist. Like the Bible has a multitude of authors, and they they come from various perspectives. But you know, like for against in instance, I think it's uh, Rachel's family in Genesis that. Um, says to uh, Abraham's servant, if this thing has come from God, uh, we can neither say good or evil about it. Mm. It's like, it's a very distinct, you know, uh, demonstration of a divine command model theory. God said it, it might be evil, it might be good, but I can't judge it. Mm. So it's, you know, whatever he says, I have to just do it, no questions asked. Whereas, you know, um, in a lot of the key Bible texts, right? Not just little minor stories, but the key ones, like the foundation of Israel's namesake and the foundation of Abraham as the progenitor of the Jewish people and the foundation of the law. In each of these stories, the central character is resisting God, is arguing with God or engaged in a disagreement and is not failing at what they're trying to do. And so the divine command model is problematic just because it just fails to account for the biblical stories that clearly indicate there is human agency and free will when it comes to uh, interactions with God, that God is seeking a relationship that's not just one-sided. Mm. No, because I think that's huge. And, and that's you spend like exhaustive natures in the book really kind of walking us through the areas and 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 I loved kind of being able to go through scripture because for anyone that's even you know been in ministry, even been in seminary as well too. Like we get so used to hearing these stories, you know, growing up, we just we get so used to them where we don't really hear them with with we don't see them anew in in ways that we should. We don't question how we were taught them. We just kind of just go with it. And so there's there's kind of almost an unconscious nature have in a certain sense of how we read scripture. And and I appreciated how you kind of are shaking us out of this. Um, shaking us out of this to to return to these stories and say no no look at this now look at this differently you know see, see I mean I'm glad you grew up with some of these stories I never did I like uh, the story of Moses uh, on Sinai the the golden calf yes the yeah. God Moses telling God no you can't do this never heard that until I was in college and somebody oh, mentioned but I, I'm agree I'm saying like the, we we see the certain parts of the stories how about that yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. so like yeah, kind of Sunday schoolized versions of these stories that we just they just become, you almost tune them out after a while. And, and it's not just evangelicals, you know, yeah. in, in uh, mainland, mainline churches where they have uh, le lectionaries, right? The mm -hmm. lectionary selectively jumps over problematic passages usually. <laughs> just kind of skips that one. All right, we'll go to the next one. Uh, so, you know, people can go through church services in those churches for years and years. And, and if they never opened up their Bible on their own, they never would hear some of these stories just because they were skipped. They, mm -hmm. they weren't, you know, they didn't make sense as the Bible text of that, of that uh, church service for that week. And you're right, because it doesn't, always, the Bible doesn't always fit nice and neat um, into things, mm -hmm. which, but, I, but I think that also makes it a little bit more interesting and a little more beautiful as well, that it does, you know, sometimes it zigs when we expect it to zag. And I think it keeps us questioning and I think it keeps us looking deeper and more faithfully into this because you, even like how you're even talking about it, the, some of that, the whole ethics of God said it, that's the way it is that has also been used for so long to be able to control people. Oh yeah. Uh, as, as, as almost a weapon um, to be able to control people. I mean, a lot of theologians felt in Germany that Nazis were able to rise to power because uh, there had developed an unhealthy obsession with obedience 
um, in in Germany. A lot of different uh, theologians who grew up in Nazi Germany felt that that was a very large contributing factor, which is even more ironic when you suddenly realize as you research that Martin Luther, uh, you know, the start of, you know, Reformation Germany, uh, argued that it was important uh, and that all Germans understood you needed to teach your children how to disobey, how to challenge the parent, that that was a necessary skill. Somehow along the way between Luther and uh, the 1940s, that changed to the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, and, and probably because of some misguided theologians who were trying to, or pastors trying to promote ideas in the church they thought were more holy, but had very unintended side effects of creating exactly the kind of people that uh, wouldn't know how to stand for the right things, wouldn't be able to um, have that sort of prophetic voice like Moses does. And, and so I want you to speak a little bit about this because I think this, this whole idea of wrestling, you don't have wrestling without doubt. Um, I, you know, I think that's one of those key ingredients that we're sprinkling into this, this, this whole thing. And, and what, what role in your mind does doubt play in, in faith? I think people forget or they misunderstand that doubt is really almost synonymous with humility. Um, and, and that's the difference when you're trying to think of healthy doubt as opposed to sort of a skeptical uh, throw everything out kind of doubt that's kind of like very um, dangerous or sort of uh, damaging. You're, you have to kind of think uh, every, when you go through the gospels, for example, stick with, you know, the Christian faith and examples we have within the Bible. When you look through each of the gospels, it accounts that pretty much every disciple doubted. Like in most churches, you'll only ever hear about doubting Thomas. But the truth is when you go through each of the accounts, it's very clear that every single person doubted. Every single one of those 12 doubted. Um, and more interestingly, when you get to Matthew's gospel, it tells you that as Jesus is ascending into heaven and commissions the disciples right before he commissions them, it says that a number of them doubted that any of this was real. Mm. And, and when I, it's funny too, because when I shared that with some of my students in a New Testament class, their eyes were all like, you could tell they were like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. What? what they were doubting at that point like you know after jesus showed himself they touched him they all right like they're still doubting mm -hmm. um and people i never hear that mentioned in church and jesus commissions them he doesn't tell them get over your doubts he doesn't say that you need to go ahead and move beyond this he commissions them with their doubts it's as if jesus is telling them in matthew take the doubts you have with you use them in spreading the gospel Right. So when you turn to the Gospel of John and we have that classic prototype story of doubting Thomas, right? The truth is, Thomas gets this terrible rep that he really doesn't deserve because his problem isn't in the Gospel of John that he's doubting. That's not where the Gospel is putting the blame. It's that he does something else. He says, I refuse to believe unless I can have it exactly in the following way as my proof. It's not, I, I will not believe until there's proof. Mm -hmm. And I'll leave that up to the divine to decide how that's proven to me. It's, I won't believe unless it happens exactly how I demand it happen in order to meet my level of certainty. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problem lies when Jesus chastises him and basically says, you know, greater are the faith of those who will come to believe only on your word. It's not that Thomas doubts, it's that he demands certainty. He demands a certainty that will have zero doubts left. That is what Jesus is responding to. Uh, the doubt is part of the process. It can be part of the humility that guides you and challenges you. It can be your thorn in the flesh like Paul that you continue to live with and, and work with that motivates you. But strangely enough, doubting Thomas is really about needing certainty, Thomas. It's, it's about uh, the kind of dilemmas which evangelicals and like-minded communities have when they put such an emphasis on, we have absolute certainty on this issue. Mm -hmm. right? And it's like, no, that's the wrong approach. You want, you want uh, a certainty of faith, but in terms of you elevating a certain level of certainty and saying, this is the standard we have to force everything to fit into, that's the problem because now you're forcing God to work within your box. Mm, I like how you put that. I like how you put that. And, and I think that also having, 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 having worked in churches uh, for a lot of my, of my life, I think that 
this whole idea of doubt and wrestling, it's seen as messy. And it doesn't fit nicely and neatly into programs. It doesn't fit nicely and neatly into much of anything. And, and I think that's a huge problem, is that we are actually almost creating people that just believe what they've been told by a person on a stage. You know, we're not, we're, not, we're not teaching people to take, to read the Bible critically and carefully. We're not teaching people to wrestle through this. We're not teaching people that this is okay. And, and I think that that's, that's a huge problem that I, I really appreciate that. I think that you, you're thrusting us kind of to, to face a lot of these things, to look at a lot of these things and saying that this isn't bad. So I know this, this is a very broad, broad, broad question. Um, but even speaking about certainty, um, I, I want you to kind of just, just, just explain a little bit some of the problems that we have when, when we lean towards inerrancy. Um, and then on the flip side, like how are we, how, then how should we read scripture more faithfully? Because I feel like there's kind of like a dichotomy there. No, sure. So like, I mean, a major problem with the idea of inerrancy is that it's unbiblical. So, I mean, like, and by that, I mean, there is nowhere in the Bible where it teaches what we would call the doctrine of inerrancy, that the Bible is completely without error. This is more of like the Trinity, a theological construct that theologians have put together by looking at various Bible texts, and they try to think what best explains things. And so the idea of a doctrine of inerrancy fits that way. It's like, oh, this is our general theory for how to best account for things, except it's a horrible theory, because it really doesn't best account for things. Um, there are multiple, multiple, multiple dozens of instances in which in the Bible, God says something and it proves not only to not be the thing that happens, but even sometimes is denied as being the authentic will of God or that uh, instead the human partner's no to it turns out to be correct. In order for inerrancy to work, it means that the whole dilemma is knowing what God said so you can do it. That's what inerrancy boils down to. It's an issue of knowledge. I have to know what was said, and then I can go do it mm -hmm. um, or follow it or believe it. So the, the premise is essentially that I just need to hear God, and once I hear him, I'm good. And the Bible's premise over and over again is if you hear God, that's the first part. Then the second part is can you recognize if that's his voice or is he testing you? And this part was really familiar to the reformers for Protestants. It was very familiar in the writings of Martin Luther, the writings of John Calvin, and other reformers. Um, they understood this theme of God testing you, that there was this requirement to differentiate God's normal voice from God's um, opposite voice, which was utilized to basically uh, found your faith, to test whether or not how deep your roots were. And... That idea has kind of been lost over time. People have really not retained that or thought about that deeply. And so what ends up happening is we just get this idea of, okay, I just need to hear what God says and anything God says will be correct. It'll be authentic. So when you think about like the debates we have now, you know, really conservative and liberals don't actually disagree with each other. They both agree on inerrancy. Liberals just think that the Bible isn't inerrant but they don't really deny with the underlying principle that if God was to say something, it would be true. They're just denying that the Bible gives us a perfect, accurate view of what that recording was. Mm -hmm. So, and the conservatives, you know, so they're not really in disagreement. They both believe in the inerrancy. They just don't know how to, they disagree on where the Bible fits in that regard. What you look at the Bible though at really closely, you start to recognize that actually it this, this whole concept of inerrancy just match onto it. God can say things that don't represent what he really wants. And he's looking to see if you know that and can reply back the correct way as with Moses um, or as in the case of Abraham. And certainly even in the case uh, more physically of Jacob with God at the Javik River. So when, and, and of course, a great example of this might be if we were to think of Jesus, right? Let's go straight to the heart of Christian faith. If we look at Jesus with the Canaanite woman or Syrophoenician woman in Mark, but I love the Matthew versions, the most filled out, you know, you have Jesus go ahead and tell the woman that um, I was not sent to the Gentiles. I was not sent to the dogs. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. She ignores that and says, I don't care. I, I need a miracle. Jesus replies again, well, here's a logic problem. I can't give uh, food to the dogs. I can't give the food that's in the children's mouth, yank it out of their mouth and give it to the dogs. I wouldn't be a good parent. 
and you wouldn't do that to your own kids too. So I'm sorry, I can only give it to the kids. And she comes back basically and says, no, you're wrong. That's, that's not how it goes. That's illogical because even the dogs get some crumbs. So you made this a zero-sum logical argument, either this or that. But actually, it's both and. And Jesus praises her, applauds her. In the words of Martin Luther, Jesus has been caught by the words of this woman, and he's now her prisoner. Mm. But, like, but, but Luther's very clear, for those that are shocked when they hear that, Luther's very clear, Jesus wanted to be her prisoner. Right. This was the goal. The goal was to lure her in and see, will you trap me? Will you figure it out? And she does because she recognizes. But the, the, the principle here in this kind of a story is that it's not following inerrancy. Inerrancy would teach that the moment he said, lost sheep of Israel only, that settled it. Mm-hmm. Right. And the moment he says that this is logic, your logic's wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. This woman's logic is wrong the moment he says it is. But no, instead she pushes against it and he comes out with doing the very thing he said he wouldn't do. This also happens with, you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus in John chapter two at the wedding at Cana, you know, same thing. No, it's not my hour. Mary turns to her servants. Yeah, he's going to do it anyways. Go over there. Sure enough, he does it, right? That's not inerrancy. Inerrancy would mean if he says it, you got it, it's done. But that's not what we see. So the problem with inerrancy is it's, it's not biblical. And as a such, what... It, you know, it may be the case that God's words are generally trustworthy, but you can't know that in a sense unless you know how to differentiate between the different modes God's speaking. Mm-hmm. So that means that we need a different uh, criterion for understanding God's words, and that means a different criteria for understanding Scripture. What parts of Scripture are illustrative of who God's character is? What is the standard upon which you're going to judge anything else? And of course, if you listen to uh, a lot of Christians, they already kind of intuit this, which is why they'll be like, well, this doesn't agree with Christ's character, or this doesn't seem to match what Jesus' teaching was, or, right? Like they already are doing that. They're looking at Jesus as the heart of God, and then they're looking at other stuff in scripture and saying, I see a conflict here. The problem with a lot of current evangelical approaches towards scripture is to basically say that the tension you're feeling is wrong, that you have to overcome that problem within you, that there isn't a tension between what that is there and that over there. And so it's in your mind. Whereas what the Bible actually reveals is, no, that tension's intended. That's part of God. This is, And this isn't like, this is what I love. This isn't a dilemma that's coming out now because, oh, we're creative and we're doing fantastic theology and trying to be creative and make up new things. No, this has been a part of the tradition from scripture, right? We don't need to go outside of scripture to figure this stuff out. It's already embedded in our sacred text, but we're not paying attention to these problems. And in my opinion, it's high time we did. Mm. And I think you're absolutely right, too, about that, Matthew. So before we get to more, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. Hey there, pastor, clergy, or community leader. Yeah, you. You know who I'm talking to. Is your community feeling scattered? Are you feeling worn out and frayed? Are you wondering what church looks like in 2021 or beyond? Guess what? Faith Street is here to help. Faith Street is an iOS and Android app that brings congregations together. It strengthens people's commitment to the church and each other. It builds community by promoting prayer, mindfulness, generosity, reflection, fellowship, and teaching as daily practices. Faith Street helps you and your staff spend less time with social media and communications and rely less on Facebook and the weekly email newsletter. It's different from apps you may have seen before because... People actually use it, and it focuses on substance over style. It's basically the anti-big box Christian community app. Help your people live life together, rally in prayer, participate more consistently, mature spiritually, and give generously. If you're interested, you can go to faithstreet.com backslash snarky, because snarky faith listeners can get 20% off. That's faithstreet, F-A-I-T-H-S-T-R-E-E-T dot com backslash snarky. I know I, I've, I've, I've liked to play this mental game, especially as, 
as uh, as I was going through this book of even thinking about this idea of, of pushing back with God. Because on the show, we oftentimes, I have a segment at, usually towards the beginning of the show called The Christian Crazy, usually highlighting the insanity of Christianity uh, for the week, kind of like the prophets or the quote-unquote prophets and all those. But but the, what I loved about this was I was going like, what if God was really speaking to these guys, like this crazy Trump stuff, right? And they're like, because I make fun of the fact that like, I heard from the Lord and this was happened. What that was like God's opening statement, like where God's like, oh my gosh, they should be horrified like by this and they're running with this? Oh gosh. You know, it, it's one of those things where I'm like, they don't know how to wrestle. I don't think this so is the, necessarily true. The but funny it's, thing is, it's just fun to play through. The my funny head. thing is, though, the uh, book of Deuteronomy and the prophet Ezekiel would both agree with you. Mm. They actually say that is what happens. Mm. So the, I, I'm not saying that I believe it. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, I don't imagine God like that uh, in, in in such a, a, a literal sense. But yeah. the theory was in the mind. So if you look at Deuteronomy's descriptions of false prophets, how it describes how they function, what they do, etc. Um, when you look at that, it's so fascinating that it says um, in several places, it says that if a false prophet has said something, has taught you to do opposite or has, has claimed something will happen, right? And it does not come to pass. Do not worry. I sent him in order to test you. Mm. Mm. But then it says you have to kill him. Now, now, at first, you're like, wait a minute, I don't understand this. You commissioned the prophet to say this false thing, but then they got to die because they said it. So at yeah. first, you're like, wait, this doesn't make sense. But then, like at Yale, we were really digging into this deep because there's you know, a lot of sections in Deuteronomy that speak to false prophets. And the implication, however, in other parts is that any prophet who hears uh, a command from God that is opposite of God's character is supposed to reject it. So like Deuteronomy seems to be supposing several layers of parts here. Mm -hmm. If the prophet hears something from God, he's supposed to be able to evaluate if it's trustworthy or not. And he's supposed to know God's will well enough to know that if he's told to do opposite of it, it's, mm. it's either not God or God's testing him. Mm. If he fails that, then he now goes forward as a false prophet mm -hmm. unknowingly to himself to go tell people a message that he should know better and because he doesn't, he is false. So if anyone believes him, then they fall into his camp, right? So like, it's this interesting thing, but Deuteronomy can imagine that same scenario. Ezekiel does this in regards to child sacrifice. So Ezekiel is like, um, God gave you these, uh, God, I gave you, God speaking, I gave you uh, bad laws and horrible statutes uh, so that you would become judged. And, and in the context, it's in reference to child sacrifice laws, right? And so some scholars suspect that it's in some relationship to Exodus, uh, I think 21, where there's a simple statement that seems to suggest child sacrifice. It doesn't have a clause like redeem the child, it just says you give it. So, and we know ancient Israel had child sacrifice in it. We, we, the Bible admits to that and, and the prophets were abhorred by it like Ezekiel. But nonetheless, um, Ezekiel's premise seems to be that God gave these laws that are bad mm -hmm. in a sense to test Israel to see, well, if you have my character, then you'll know they're bad and you'll, you'll resist them. They don't. So then the judgment is that they receive what those evil laws produce. Mm -hmm. Because this is the vision of me you have, then you're going to get a consequence other than blessing. You're going to get the curse. Like If, if you think of me like Satan... And I, so I try to, you know, if I act like Satan and you accept that, then you must really be worshiping Satan, mm -hmm. which means that you're going to get Satan as your consequence as a result from this. Mm. So, but it's interesting, Ezekiel and Deuteronomy both do have that idea that you're having in your head. Like, oh yeah, I wonder if God was talking to the Trump supporters and telling them to, to you know, talking to, what's his name, Jay Baker or something like that. You know, no, no, going, not, Jay, not Jay, uh, no, no, Jim Baker, Jim Baker, Jay Baker. Jim Baker, Baker. sorry. <laughs> uh, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, that's, um, you're right. I mean, I've al I've almost thought of it because a lot of conservatives I know don't understand sarcasm very well, and I was just wondering if God was just kind of being sarcastic, and they just like were like, "Oh, what? Like, huh? Come on, God," because it's never fun to explain sarcasm. So I think that would be no, it's not a good joke if you have to explain. It's it. not. It's not. <laughs> but that's the that's also a, a terrible problem in the Bible when the Bible writers make jokes because yeah. they don't explain it, and then we're like, "But we really don't get it," <laughs> and it's not because it's terrible; it's because. We're not living two, three thousand years ago. <laughs> that is true. That is true. now. Now, what what I feel like, 
And, and speak, speak to this a bit, because we've talked about like, a lot of things like inerrancy and, and how we read stuff and how we wrestle through stuff. But, and, and, and I know, I know like, paths don't necessarily just go out like, on a spectrum completely like this, but it feels like that in many ways that whole that just believe, you know, that inerrancy, the idea of just believe, just because it's said that way, it almost leads to this weird kind of a blind faith where, where we're constantly almost looking for signs, but we almost are outside of relationship. Uh, with God in the process also. So it, it, it lends itself to this really hollow faith, but it, there's a lot of certainty in the, in the hollowness. And then on the flip side, it almost seems like an active faith is messy and dirty, involves wrestling, it involves not getting it right, not hearing it right, but there's this whole process because that's how we learn. We learn through wrestling. We learn through failing. We learn through falling down. And it seems like this way, even though it seems like it's filled with doubt, it seems like it leads more towards an active well, I think part of this is, you know, it, you can take this out of the realm of theology and kind of bring this into relationships, you know, which you were doing, you know, we, we, they're, they're very intricately connected, mm -hmm. but tied in with our ideas about God are very much tied in our ideas about um, relationships. What's a healthy relationship? Mm -hmm. How does it work? Right? So you're said, oh, well, we want something neat and tidy and, um, but reality is messy. Okay. But just look at our marriages. Yeah. Right or relationships for those that aren't married yet and or won't be because uh, but they're they're in a relationship with their significant other and what happens in that dynamic relationship is there's a lot of challenges mm -hmm. right and part of that process is coming to not only just learn about this person but to learn about them perhaps even deeper than they know themselves mm -hmm. uh, in some cases or to understand them well enough to know when they don't act like themselves. So for example, you know, to bring this home to Abraham, Abraham in his episode of fighting with God, he begins his clause with far be it from you, mm. right? Like I know who you are and this ain't it, right? So there's always this element in a relationship about uh, needing to know somebody deeply well. And I mean, think about um, in respect to movie plots, right? Where somebody like uh, kidnaps uh, a spouse and they're going ahead and, and hold, you know, threatening that their other spouse will die if, you know, they tell them anything. So get rid of him, right? And so then, you know, they, they come out, they're like on the bridge and it's like, I hate you. I ne never loved you. Leave me alone. I never want to see you. The guy's in shock. And then, you know, she or he, whichever version, walks away and the spouse is left sitting, standing there. And like, there's a decision that has to be made. Do I believe what I just heard because they said it? Or do I think that it's it's false? And so that means there's something else going on, mm. right? And if they uh, believe it, then they don't really have a deep relationship with that person. Mm. And the plot of the movies, of course, never does that. The plot is, of course, the spouse truly understands. Mm. And so they know very well that this is not the case. Um, and so they, they seek after and they don't fall for it. And this is, you know, that's important because that speaks to the fact that it's messy. You, you, you will have... Uh, situations. Now, less dramatic in Hollywood is, you know, your spouse has always told you, I don't appreciate this. Uh, you know, like, I don't, I, I would not appreciate you suddenly leaving to go with your friends out or something at, at 12 midnight. I don't know what, what, what crazy. A hypothetical. That's totally hypothetical. hypothetical. Right, yeah, keep um, no, I, I, there is hypothetical. <laughs> I, I'm not I'm coming I'm up. I'm joking. I'm joking. I have no personal experience with this, but I have friends who do, but plenty okay. of them. And um, and if not them, I can watch it in movies plenty of times. It's a, it's a trope. But none. I mean, honestly, I really don't have <laughs> personal experience. But uh, maybe I will soon. Who knows? But the point is, is that if that were to happen, and suddenly there comes an opportunity where that could happen, mm -hmm. and you're I don't know stupid enough to ask your spouse whether or not you could do it, and and you know that spouse turns to you and goes, "Okay, yeah, sure, whatever, go." Right, like if you have a good relationship, you should worry. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna <laughs> hear a whole background symphony mm -hmm. happening in that few words. You, if you're an idiot, you'll be like, "Oh, awesome! All right, see ya!" All right, like that was the bad decision yeah. uh, because again, the words don't matter. It's them in comparison with all that you should already know mm. about this person. Mm. So, you know. And then, so that illustrates why it's important to know the person in your relationship and thus why it would be important for us to know God and to be able to pay attention. Of course, that means that, right, there is a consistency mm -hmm. too. So like the Bible's very clear that, you know, 
uh, God does not change. But that does not refer to God's words. That refers to God's character, mm. right? So there's a consistency to the character, just like there's a consistency to your spouse, right? The words might alter. You might have to evaluate them, but you're going to grow over time to learn who she, he is. And the same is true for God. But then that also, though, means that, right, the experience of growing with someone is always dynamic. So that means that like, right, if you're going to be with your spouse or your significant other, you're going to be challenged by them. You're going to experience disagreements or growth uh, with them. And so in the same way that uh, that's like Jordan B. Peterson has said on multiple occasions when he talks about uh, Genesis 32 with Jacob wrestling with God, he sees this as intricately uh, analogous to marriage. You have to have uh, your, your spouse should be your fighting partner, should be the one that challenges you, should be the one that pushes you because you won't grow otherwise. So if we recognize that, you know, the sort of patriarchal sexist, uh, you know, woman does whatever I tell her and or, or, you know, you could reverse it as well if you chose to, but historically, you know, woman does whatever I tell her and she doesn't pipe up, right? There's no growth. There can't be growth. It's, it's, it's not even a real relationship. It's, it's hollow, shallow, but you have real dynamic ability for that spouse uh, to turn and, and give feedback. It's going to grow you both. Mm -hmm. And so why would we expect that to be true in human relationships and not also to be true with the divine? Mm -hmm. Thank you. I, I like that. Now, now a lot of the book, uh, like the second half of the book is, is, is where I really like you get into the controversial topics. Um, where you because none of this was controversial. No, this is all easy. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So where you go through like the saying no to prejudice, patriarchy, homophobia, divine violence, saying no to hell, exclusivity, and and in in the end, as we kind of kind of start to like wrap this up a little bit, what what would you want your readers to take from the book? What would be like the nutshell that you want? I would want them to realize that there's a whole other paradigm in the Bible for how to approach the controversies we have today. Mm. And that the current discussions, not even just the answers, you know, that's a cliche. Oh, the, the answers we have today are not the only ones, right? Well, forget the answers. The questions we're asking aren't the only ones. The, the orientation we have to ask the questions isn't the only one. And when we look at scripture, we suddenly see that there is a whole other way to interact with it. But then along with that, we open our eyes to recognize that there's all sorts of things in the biblical text that we have not paid attention to, mm -hmm. you know, things that we have skipped over, uh, whether that is um, not noticing how Jesus speaks differently about hell with different groups, or whether it's noticing that Revelation seems to suggest that the characters who just got judged and killed are now in the New Jerusalem at the end. What gives? What's going on? Uh, things that you just skip over because you think, okay, well, that's not possible. When you have a different orientation, suddenly now you're able to look and go, oh, I didn't notice that. Oh, I, I, I wow, you know, like just uh, another thing too, like imagining um, the role of the feminine with the divine, recognizing that, you know, in Christian theology, the identification of Jesus with uh, wisdom in Proverbs the personification of God's wisdom in Proverbs um, has always been foundational for Christian doctrine since Paul and reaffirmed at every council. And yet at no point has anyone stopped to think, wait a minute, wisdom, Sophia is female. The church has from its beginnings identified the male historical Jesus as best described in the Old Testament as female, mm -hmm. as a personified woman, Right. What does that, what value can that bring for thinking about the divine and feminine imagery and, and the, the limitations of historical gendering and like all these things that I'm not saying where that has to go. I'm just pointing out, none of us are asking that. Mm -hmm. None of us are seeing that possibility. So what I hope is that readers can come away from this, especially readers who come from, you know, conservative backgrounds and realize we don't have to lose our ability to think in orthodox ways just because we're growing in new directions. The Bible already has those possibilities in it. We don't have to implant them or, 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 or enforce them onto the text. They're there already, but we do have to have the eyes to be looking for them. 
And too often we've allowed our own human constructs, our own human boxes of tradition to stop us from paying attention to the principles that the Bible itself already had there. Um, you know, it's, it's not that we need to make the Bible more liberal or we need to enforce how conservative it is. We just need to start listening to the Bible on its own terms. What, what did it already say before we started getting into a huff and a puff about what it needed to say? Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Now, um, what I, I, f- I feel like I, I, I should give you some space here because this book has been, and like I'd mentioned earlier, my group, it's kind of been this weird therapy for a lot of people going through and wrestling and talking through this. Now, I'm getting a sense for you that you may need a little therapy if you can handle this, but I was sensing a little need uh, that you have some issues with the Trinity that you need to get off your chest. Um, I've, heard, I've, I've heard this a little bit um, just through the conversation. So, no? no? About the construct oh. of the Trinity? But I didn't know oh, if you wanted... Think- so I, I no, that's that's fine. Like I, that, that was left field. I mean, really. It, well, I know, um, but, so I, I was curious. So if you, I was going to give you like some therapy. Like, can you? You think you can you have a, have a I minute? Mentioned the Trinity in the book, or I barely mentioned it. No, no, just in this conversation. In this conversation. So okay. I was like, well, I was like, huh. So maybe so he needs a little. Space I have to... struggled with the Trinity for for a very long time. Not not the. So like I've always been a very good Christian in the sense of like or classic orthodoxy. Like I affirm that the, the Nicene Creed, I affirm the Trinity. But then mentally, in terms of thinking through how does it make sense, mm-hmm. right? It's never really clicked for the longest time in terms of being able to make sense. So it's always like this very like it makes sense in the sense of it's logically I think necessitated by the descriptions of the New Testament, and when you bring them together as a canon you have to account for how they make, you know, how they fit together. It's like a logical equation, premise one, premise two, premise three, demands said conclusion. I think that makes sense. But then in terms of it being practical or making some valuable sense, I always struggled with that. And I mean, I remember at Yale reading through different books by famous Trinitarian theologians, and it just going over my head, like, this is so complicated. What? But um, I, I, I had a change of heart on that last year. I, I, I ended up coming... Uh, I, I came up with, strangely enough, reading through some some various documents from both like Irenaeus and from Valentinian Gnostics and, and various other Christian groups who were all trying to describe God. And, and I realized that there are alternative ways we could potentially describe the Trinity. I'm not going to share any of those yet. I plan to eventually write them down when I'm more confident about it. But what the fun part was is um, I did start to realize not just that it was logically necessitated, but that there's real value to how the Trinity can give us insights into God's character. Mm. Um, so what I would say is, um, you know, so that people aren't just sitting like, well, that's great for you, but you haven't given me anything. I would say that the Trinity is something that's worth struggling with. Mm. And I think it's needed that you admit that you're struggling with it, but you should struggle. And if you can struggle like Jacob at that Javik River, there's a blessing at the end of it, I think. Mm. Um, so I, I, as one testimonial to some people who might be out there also like, man, that doctrine makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, if it's not making sense the way other people describe it, don't be afraid to, you know, try to figure out new ways of thinking through it. Don't be afraid to try to figure out what were the intentions of this and how does it make sense? It's okay. Go for it. There's a blessing, I think on the other side of it. And maybe, uh, in the not too distant future, I'll have a, another book that deals with it. And, you know, we can have a converse, we can have that conversation. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. I would love that. Now, um, now Matthew, like what, what for you is on the horizon? Like what's next for you that you at well, least want to talk about now? <laughs> in the so last I, I, or two. I'm trying to turn this book into uh, a series of academic monographs. So, you know, some Oxford or some, I don't know, some, some publisher, whoever wants it. Um, but a more in-depth version of this uh, in terms like the first book, I'm, I'm like, I'm tentatively thought of titling it. I mean, we'll see if the publisher wants to title it that way, but like fighting with God, a theology of confrontation. Mm-hmm. Um, so like what I want to do is go really deep more in a scholastic way into some of these ideas to really illustrate how they form a foundation for a healthier theology for the church. Something that, um, you know, uh, the average reader who reads saying no to God is going to not have those problems. Mm. But if you are a trained theologian and you're evangelical, you might very well be like, but wait a minute, you know, I have this counter argument, you know, how would you respond to that? 
Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm very good at usually like imagining what the counter arguments will be. So um, that was a skill set that my professors always joked about. Like uh, you're a lawyer, but with a but you're a biblical scholar because um, I can always think of twelve different ways someone's going to decide to come at the argument before they ever think of it. Um, that's helpful. They didn't understand it. They didn't. <laughs> that wasn't their approach. But the thing is, is that I, I I'm hoping to try and do a real in depth study on some of these issues. But then also expand it. So like in that upcoming book, I want to explore atheism um, and not in the typical apologetic sense of, you know, are atheists wrong or are atheists right? I want to explore in the sense of when you have um, certain protest forms of atheism or when you have Richard Dawkins come out and say um, that this view of God is monstrous. This is not how a good God would act. When they make that kind of claim, are they potentially within the Christian prophetic tradition or the Jewish prophetic tradition? Are they not unknowingly taking part in a theological discourse because they are, they are operating from the standpoint that they know what a good God should be, which is why this God isn't. And even if they don't go that far, if they can critique the view of God in scripture with other parts of scripture, are they not also still part of that tradition? So I'm, I want to look at um, and expand uh, both the understanding of how atheists and Christians can view each other in a more symbiotic relationship, something that's healthier and more united, uh, even despite the differences and obvious problems that divide, but also to look and expand deeper into understanding um, the role of the atonement, spending more time on understanding um, how Christ and his work on the cross might very well uh, also tie in with these themes of confrontation, of uh, fighting for what's right. How does Christ's cry of dereliction actually point us towards these stories of like Jacob wrestling with God at the Jabbok River? So I have these themes that I, I just want to take this book, not only get more deep scholastically, but take it and bring it to new territory, new areas to expand the scope of just how deep this theme really runs throughout scripture. Well, the book is Saying No to God, a Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully by Matthew J. Cortman. Matthew, like one of my favorite quotes from the book, I think sums up a lot of what we've talked about this hour, where you say that God's word is an instructive guide. If we disobey it for the right reasons, we are faithful saints. So Matthew, I uh, just want to say thank you so much for your time and being on the show, and I look forward to what you are doing in the future too. Thank you so much for having me on and for everyone who listened, and I hope to have more conversations with you, whether on the show or not. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again to Matthew Cortman, and remember, you can find his book over on Amazon, Saying No to God. And before I send you off today, just a reminder to share, subscribe, and give Snarky Faith a review over on Apple Podcasts. It helps get the word out to new listeners. You want to interact directly with me, hit me up at questions at snarkyfaith.com. We've even got a Snarky Faith Facebook page if you want to talk there, too. Thank you for being part of the show week after week. I appreciate all of you. And just a reminder, if you're a podcast listener, hang around. we got a teeny bit of Christian crazy just for you. Kind of like a little Costco sample. Little nugget, little taste here before you leave. So yes, if you're listening on the radio, you can find the podcast version at anywhere they host podcasts or snarkyfaith.com. But as I release you out into the wild, wide world, I send you out with the holiest amount of grace and peace and snark. Go and make a difference. No matter how big or small, you be the difference that people need you to be in their lives. I'm out of here. Catch you guys next week. Peace. Faith Street is an iOS and Android app that brings congregations and communities together. It strengthens people's commitment to the church and to each other. It builds community by promoting prayer, mindfulness, generosity, reflection, fellowship, and teaching as daily practices. If you're a leader of a community of faith, Faith Street should be an app that you definitely check out. Snarky Faith listeners receive 20% off 
So all you need to do is go to faithstreet.com backslash snarky. That's F-A-I-T-H-S-T-R-E-E-T dot com backslash snarky. So for those that have hung out to the end, I promised earlier a little bit of Christian crazy, a little bit of Christian crazy, just a tiny little bit of Christian crazy that we're going to throw it today. And, you know, I think, I think we have cat care from the Christian crazy. And, and, and I love it when people answer questions that no one's really asking them to. Because here we have cat care talking to sentient egg, Steve Schultz, about what heaven looks like. And it's a doozy. It's, it's, it, it is a batshit crazy doozy. And it's worthy of the Christian crazy. So it's all you get this week, but we'll have more next week. Enjoy. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> and hope you guys have a good week, too. So some people like to travel. They still like to drive. You know, I guess you could drive. Most of the cars don't really have wheels, per se. Most cars fly in heaven. But there's all different ways you can transport. You can ride on light. You can ride on song in heaven to travel across heaven. Uh, there's bubbles you can step into, and they float you there. It depends awesome. on what everybody wants. There's always different ways to travel. So are there towns and cities along the way? But yes, there's very beautiful countryside and there's amazing cities with real supernatural things to do. There's amusement parks, there's rodeos, there's uh, sports arenas where every game is played as worship to Jesus Christ because Jesus gets all the points. Well, now I'm trying to remember, Kat, if this was you in your book, because I've read your books, but someone I read said that people like uh, Billy Graham or some people, their rewards are so great that their mansion was as big as a city. Was that you or is that someone else? I did say that. I said that. I said, there's some people's mansions that are the size of New York City. Wow. I am not exaggerating. I'm not. 